0: Well, good morning, church. There you go. <laughs> Do you have a Bible? Romans chapter 2. We're picking it up. I'll um, give you a little uh, bit of information, too. I know in, in years past we've handed out Bibles. We're going to kind of stop that practice for a while, see what happens. A couple of reasons. One is um, I want us to get used to bringing our Bibles. I think sometimes we can get comfortable with not having to. Um, but that doesn't mean that some of you don't need one. And so we've provided Bibles for you. If you need one and want one, they're free of charge in the bookstore. So you can see Aaron and his team over there, and they'll just make sure you get a copy. For the rest of us, we're going to bring our Bibles for Christians. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We're going to put it up on the screen for you today um, and every day after so that you can get comfortable growing to know your own Bible, making your own notes, and using it as a reference in the future, okay? Make sense? All right, um, let me give you a little background, a little catch-up for where we've been. I think we're somewhere in the week 10 mark, give or take a week or two. I'm not certain I keep good track of that, but I know we're kind of uh, six, seven weeks into talking about sin and depravity. This is the fun part of the gospel. Um, that was sarcasm. Go ahead and laugh. Um <laughs> He is making, Paul that is, the writer of this book is making an argument, trying to remove all the excuses that mankind has for um, saying that somehow God's judgment, assessment or their need isn't accurate, okay? And so he's gone through a, a series of people so far, and we're going to add another one today. One is this group of person, and you may have know, know some of them, you might even be one of them here, the people who say there is no such thing as God. We call them the God, or Paul says, the God denier, the God suppressor. This, this is a person who seizes a God, according to Paul, by what's been made, denies that truth, and then goes on a tailspin of sin to such a degree that they end up at a place that Paul says is a debased mind. And a debased mind is a real simple description. It is someone who now can't discern right from wrong. They call good, bad, and bad good. They applaud sin in the sinner. That's how far down sin takes people when they deny the existence of God. And so Paul says to people who might throw up to God this excuse, look, I didn't know you were you. I didn't know you existed. No one ever told me. Um, Paul says, no, you have no excuse because you know that I exist by what's been made. The second group of people we dealt with, we introduced last week, and this group of people is the good person. Some of you might be here today, good people, the kind of people that are moral and they take care of their families and pay their taxes, and they would look at Paul's argument of us being guilty as charged and say, wait a minute, I'm not as bad as that guy. I don't have a debased mind, I don't pervert truth and sexual things, and I don't end up calling good bad and bad good, there's got to be an exemption for me, and so Paul says, no, you're guilty as well, and uh, and he says, because you're measured by your heart, that God sees clearly everything that we are, all the secret intentions and the motives of our heart, and we are caught red-handed, even the good people right there. So we've been through a couple of those things together. We've also introduced what we would call the principles of God's judgment, or at least a a beginning uh, collection of those. One of them was that God uh, judges according to truth. As terrifying as that may sound, um, God knows everything about everyone, the secret intentions and the motives and the will of your heart. And so you can be great, like comparatively to me. Some of you are. We, we can look at each other and find maybe the one person who just shines above all others, and yet the, the, the Holy Spirit can discern and sift the human heart to such a degree that everyone's caught because our intentions and our motives and our minds are really messed up, and, uh, and God knows that. So he measures things based on truth. There is no one who is falsely accused. No one's going to get to heaven, and God go. oh, I'm, I'm sorry of judging you because you really are really special. No, God's <laughs> not going to find that person. <laughs> We introduced last week the idea of this part of God's judgmental uh, nature, and that is that he is impartial in his judgment. Um, He doesn't favor any particular person or people group. So it's not like he looks at the good and says, well, at least I like them better than the God deniers. I like them better than the debased mind people or the religious people who, who have some knowledge of him, who show up in church and sit in pews and raise their hands during worship. It's not that God looks at them and says, hey, they're my people. Now, th- those folks I have a kindred spirit with, and so there's a special place in my heart for them, and so there is no, um, there's no equal judgment. That's not true because Paul took us through that process last week. In verse 11, God shows no impartiality. And then we added this part, that God judges us according to our deeds. Now, if you're a thinking person, that's, that is a conflict for you because we understand the gospel, The gospel is a story about God giving. Apart from us, he gives mercy and grace to those who confess him, and there is no works attached to it. And so it sounds a little contradictory, but Paul is simply making an argument for the reality that happens when God does that, that God saves people and, watch, he changes people that he doesn't save anybody, that he doesn't also transform. Maybe not all equally, not all at the same time, not unto perfection until heaven, but he does transform people. Even an expression of faith in Jesus is the beginning of life. Do you understand? Of which you can't do unless he changes you. So like things like confession and things like feeling conviction of sin, that's the Holy Spirit's work, living in the heart of a believer. Things like seeking forgiveness of other people, service, all sorts of things God judges according to our deeds. And it's not a good pile, bad pile theology. Remember, we talked about some people viewing God as, as long as I have good works, at least some good works that outnumber my bad works, that's how God will measure us. That's not his point. The point is that God saves people and he saves them unto good works and they do good works. And so when, when we get to heaven, here's what judgment will do. It will just simply assess what came out of us as authenticating marks of his transformation in us. Get it? Now, there will be people there who stand up and say, God, didn't I do this, and didn't I do that, and wasn't I in that church, and didn't I sit in that sermon, and didn't I do all this stuff? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Kind of a terrifying prospect for, according to Scripture, many, many people who think they have a relationship with God based on things they do, but never have received by faith God's free gift of mercy through Christ. And so Paul is simply going down all the arguments, pulling the rug out from under every person. So at the end of the story, for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived on this planet, their only hope is grace through Christ alone, right? And that's why it's a little bit arduous, this task of digging week after week after week after week of Paul's argument of our guilt. And and even though you might go, I would wish, can't we get to something a little bit more happy? Can't we just get somewhere a little bit more joyous? Listen, I'm telling you, what makes the gospel so amazingly joyful is to recognize how much you need it, right? Right? And so we're going to go through this this journey together, the pace that God has ordained for us, but uh, that's his intentions, okay? In the five verses we're looking at today, Paul begins to introduce a perspective, a Jewish perspective now, of self-righteousness. This is the next group um, in Paul's uh, argument. So just like the good people, after hearing Paul talk about the God deniers in chapter one, they stood up and said, boy, Paul, drop the hammer. These people deny you and they live crazy lives and they're reckless and they don't obey a truth and they're twisted and they think right is wrong and wrong is right. Bring it, man. Preach it. These people are standing in line encouraging that kind of judgment only to find Paul turn the target on them and they go, wait a minute, I don't like that. Sitting in the wings is now the religious person, the Jewish person, watching Paul's description of the good and the God-denier, and and they're saying, I'm glad the Gentiles are here this morning to hear this message, right? That, that's his argument. So he's, he's now going to introduce this whole religious person, the Jewish mindset, and I'm going to bring us into that. So it's, it's people who claim some proximity to God based on some confession, okay? So let's read these verses. It's uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, and then we'll... They show that the the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting, fascinating to me that deep down within the the corners of every human heart is an excuse maker. It's an excuse factory. It simply puts itself in a position to say, I didn't know... Um, I'm the exception, I'm different than, I deserve something more than this complete and universal judgment that I'm as guilty as every other person on the planet. That is in every one of us, and so this passage is taking us the next step deeper, and it lays out fairly simply, it's not that complex, but there are a couple things I want you to notice. In fact, there are things to notice that aren't really there, and that is the imposed questions that Paul is addressing in this section of Scripture. Scripture. It's almost like in the blank spaces between these verses, he predicts the audience who's going to have the biggest problem with what he's just said, and then he goes on to address it, right? It's the imposed kind of objections to these, these absolutes about God's assessment of sinners. And so uh, he deals with two particular groups of people. He's going to deal now with the Jewish heart and their objections to what he said, and he's going to deal with the non-Jewish or the Gentile mindset, or that I would say the non-religious person. The good person and his objections to it. The first one um, you can find right after verse 11. Tell me if you don't even perceive this. When he says, For God shows no partiality. So you're a Jewish Christian reading that. What do you think? Time out here. Paul, you're missing this by a mile. You need a little bit of help. We're God's people, we got the covenants, right? We obey the law. We're in this. I mean, God said he loves us. God said he chose us. Now, there's a whole different section for us in this, Paul. So I got an issue with what you're saying, but watch what Paul says in verse 13 to address that imposed objection. He says, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. (laughs) So Paul punches them right in the eye, right out of the box, because the tendency of the human heart is to gather information but not be changed. Now, don't take this too personal. Let it be whatever the Holy Spirit does. But gobs of people flood churches on Sundays who simply have an interest in gaining information but have no desire whatsoever to change. You could be here today going, Well, that's, if you just, you've just described my life for the last four years. I've been fairly faithful. I consider myself a good person, but it's not happening in my life. In other words, what Paul is saying here, it's not what you think that you have. It's not what you know. It's not your heritage. It's not what church you attend. And it's not what doctrine you claim to believe. Paul says you are judged based on your doing of what God says. The doing of the word. Because the Jews have always thought that somehow their salvation was only directly connected to their, to their covenant relationship with God. That salvation was directly connected to the law. Okay, knowing the law. In fact, Paul thought this. He, he says this in Philippians chapter 3 of himself. Now, this is the guy who's pulling out the arguments. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, he's talking of himself, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, faultless. I did church, Paul said. I did everything God ever said in a standard, and I was the example to follow. I was zealous, and I was faultless in my behaviors. And yet Paul had to have Jesus introduce himself to him to find salvation. And so Paul talks about that like saying, listen, you're going to be measured not by what you think you have or what you think you know or your religious affiliations or some stated like we're God's people exemption. You're going to be judged by you do. In other words, I'll put it this way, and you can leave it. It's a better handlebar. You can't audit truth. In college, you can, you can pay your price and sit in a class, and you can hear everything the professor has to say, and you can, uh, I suppose you can sit around and draw stick figures if you want, but you're not going to be tested. You don't have to write papers, and no one's going to give you a grade. You're auditing that class. There's a lot of Christians who audit truth. They sit in church and they hear week after week after week after week what God says and they have no intentions of turning. That's called repentance. No intentions of obedience, like radical obedience. No desire to be exposed or say, well, that applies to me and it applies to me here. Right? They're just auditing the truth. There's no confession or repentance. Now, when I was writing my notes down, I went to Neil and I said, Neil, I want to use a couple of illustrations, but I don't want to get too personal. And so he gave me permission. So let's blame Neil on this one. Um, I was thinking it back to our uh, Building a Stronger Church series. And we were simply presenting to you what I think are biblical, gospel-centered behaviors of living hearts, okay? Love for God's word, prayer, a dependence on God, service to the body, right? Biblical community with each other and and the generosity and, and reaching out to the lost, And then I said, okay, Neil, give me some information. How many people participated in our generosity? (laughs) We had had basically 30% of our people participate. Now, here's what I'm saying to you, okay? The gospel says, straight up, you don't provide for yourself. The gospel says you are free with God's resources. And yet, I don't know why, I, I haven't had any conversations with people, 70% of the people said, it doesn't apply to me. I've got the exemption. I either don't like what they're doing, I don't trust what they're doing, I don't like this, so I'm the exemption. So as an example, we present to you what the Bible says about generosity, and many of you say, whatever. When I say something about service and we say, hey, we believe that God has saved us to serve. And every Christian, every person who confesses should have their hands in somebody's life. Everyone. No exception. You're not the, you're not the unique person who has no gifts that God didn't give at conversion. So you don't have a, a need to participate. And yet we have, like always, like every church in the country, the fewest do the most when you're the exception. And we could just keep throwing that on there. I I suppose you get my point, right? Whenever the word of God is presented and you leave unresponsive, you are auditing the truth. You are simply gaining knowledge of which you won't respond to, which becomes more condemnation and more judgment, goodbye bulletin, in the future. You get it? You can smile because I still love you. Do you understand my point? That's the reality. It's the reality in me. I, I sit in services four to six times a Sunday. Someone asked me the other day, how do you get fed? That's difficult. Like, I'm assuming it happens on Wednesday and Thursday when I'm studying. Like, I hope it does. Like, I hope when I'm studying that that's how God's going to feed a shepherd. But ultimately, I do this a lot. And you can get stuck in the motions. Doing things that have no connection to the human heart whatsoever. Well, I think that's what Paul's talking about. You You can't claim exemption after all. I'm a Jesus follower, so I'm good to go. And Paul just simply says, well, really? Well, we're going we're gonna to find out because ultimately what you do is going to be measured. It's going to be seen for what it is. You can't say to God that you know this much or you don't know that or you don't do this. You're part of that denomination. What God requires, are you ready, is God-motivated obedience for his glory out of love. That's what he requires. That's what he does when he changes lives. So however that feels, it feels. I want you to turn to the right in, uh, in your Bibles to James chapter one. Because James brings up almost a very like exact representation of what Paul has just said in chapter two of Romans. And he's talking about how we are as believers to be practitioners of truth. Not knowledge gainers, not harborers of truth, But practitioners of truth, we are doers of the word, okay? So I'm going to read a couple verses, and we're going to hover in verse 25. We're going to start in verse 22, go through 25, and there's four particular activities of being a doer that respond to how we treat the word. So let me uh, read these verses, and we'll talk about it for a little bit. James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now listen very carefully to verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. There are four particular activities in verse 25 that are involved with doing. I'm going to call them Um, gospel looks, okay? How Christians, truly converted people, respond to the word of God, okay? And the first one is, you can see that phrase, the one who looks, the word really, or that phrase really means like intensity, intensity in looking, or intentional looking. It's the idea of contemplating or accurately considering this truth. This is, um, in James' mind, he uses the mirror, which is a great illustration of how hard it is to look consistently, and with intensity. In, in their day, a mirror wasn't like a piece of glass with some kind of chrome painting on the back that showed a perfect representation. In fact, you could just glance in our mirrors and see a great image, right? Well, in their day, they would take like silver or bronze or brass and they would pound it out with hammers and then try to pound it out even smoother and then try to finish it somehow. But even when they were all done doing all that they could do, it was a brutal image. It was like looking in one of the funny mirrors in the circus. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm kind of fat here. I'm skinny there. And so it was all you know, dimpled up and distorted. But they, that's all they had. And so they would take great care in turning it and examining it intensely to try to find an image that represented who they are. Well, that's the illustration that James uses to talk about how we go to the word of God. you got to twist. you got to spend some time looking at it and letting it really, really reflect you. It's not a glancing blow. If if your version of engaging the truth is showing up on Sunday hearing me yak at you, you don't get it. You don't get it. Because that's not transformative ultimately. This whole thing we do right now is confrontive. Preaching is about a confrontation. It's the hostile take of the heart. The rest of this, the cultivating your heart, is the intensity of looking. You get it? He adds, well, he adds another thing in this picture of looking. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, it's the idea of continual looking. Every day. Every day. I know in my own life, if, if there's a whole bunch of, Sinfulness coming out of me, it's directly connected to how much and how little I've spent time in the Word. It is. So I have, for whatever reasons, maybe they're good things, they're just not great things. I've been busy with lots of good things and I haven't been in the Word continually. I haven't persevered there. And so when I persevere there, it shows me the sin because sin pops up every minute of every day, doesn't it? And so let's say I take a couple weeks off from looking at the mirror. Well, what's going to happen to that sin? It's going to find all sorts of ledges in my life and all sorts of places and cracks to hang out and it eventually will eat me, right? It just will. If I spend time in the continual persevering look of the word, well, those things won't find easy footholds in my life. He he adds one other thought. He says, uh, not only the one who perseveres, but being no hearer who forgets. It it, it means that we need to take a remembering look to look long enough to never forget what it reflects or what it reveals, you know? Have you ever found yourself reading the Word and go, I have no idea what it said? Ever? And you get a little frustrated and you tap out and you, I'll come back to it again, only to have your mind so distracted and, and so far away and you've got agenda and you've got that half hour and it's gotta fit in that half hour, you don't have the time to spend enough time there to continually look so that you can remember what it says. It requires effort. He adds one one last thing and it's the phrase that that Paul used in Romans and that is we need to be a person who has a responsive look to the word, a doer of the word. If if you're hearing my voice right now and you have no intentions of responding to what God says, then you would be doing the opposite of what Paul and of James have just said. We come to the word to be transformed by it. We come to the word to be confronted by it. We, we come to the word to have God in his still voice confront places and idols we didn't even know we had. And if we aren't prepared to lay it all down, whenever he comes looking for it, we aren't doing what he suggests here in Romans. We're not doing what James suggests in, in chapter one, coming with a responsive look. Now, with the time we have left, let's take a look at the uh, second kind of invisible um, objection that Paul deals with. The second objection or complaint it's kind of in between verses 13 and 14, and it's from the non-Jewish. It's from the Gentiles. And their, their argument is, wait a minute, Paul. How can God hold us accountable to stuff we didn't know? Like, why am I going to be judged for a law that I didn't ever read? I don't have it. Get it? And so that's his argument to the person, and it's a legitimate question to suggest somehow that, that he has just said, you're going to be measured by the law you don't do. You're not, a, you're not a doer, you're a hearer. And the Gentile goes, well, wait, I don't even have the law. So where's this judgment coming down on me? Look at verses 14 and 15, because Paul pulls that rug out from under us as well. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the wor- work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse even excuse them. So here's, uh, here's Paul's argument against the people who say somehow that they didn't get the law, they don't deserve the judgment. He says, well, there's three things judging you all the time. He says, there's a law written on your heart. God has given you a conscience and it's your memory. Okay, so let's just dig through these to see how this will end up condemning us in the future. The first one is the law written on our hearts. In other words, there's a moral code in every person. Even the person who says there's no such thing as God, he has a moral code. Now, he wouldn't call it a moral code. He wouldn't call it from God unto him. He would simply say that's just human nature, but it's not human nature. God has written in every person this moral code. Now, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, describes it or illustrates it this way. And maybe you don't know you have a moral code, but you always do when this happens, when you're mistreated. Moral code comes right up, right? Every time. So, for instance... When you say, how would you like it if I did that to you? That belongs to me. I shared with you, why don't you share with me? You're, you're implying there that there's this understanding, this moral code, right? You're not just saying that it bothered me. You're saying it was wrong. And it requires that we both agree on this morality. That's the, that's the written code. And by the way, we're just going gonna to make it really clear. If you're in a trial and you've committed some crime, but you're either unaware that it's right or wrong, right, and have no conscience about it, they call you insane. <laughs> Don't they? they? They put in like a name by you and they send you off to white funny room. They do. They put you somewhere where the normal... Moral code doesn't apply because you don't know. You're crazy. So just so you know, every person who ever lived has this written on their hearts. And, and we know it and feel it when someone mistreats us. That's the first thing that Paul uses against those who say, wait a minute, I don't have a law. And he says, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, and you know it. Second, second um, condemning proof that Paul mentions is our conscience. Now, it sounds at first glance that it's the same, but it's not the same. The law in our hearts tells us what's right and wrong. The conscience part tells us how we respond to it, what we do with it. Here's how you know. The conscience tells sinners when to hide. Fair? When I was a young man, my mother used to call me busy or mischievous and uh, I suppose that might be true. Um, I was seven years old. We were living in Texas. You could collect all the fireworks a man could ever want. <laughs> and I wasn't old enough at seven to collect anything, but my brother did. And in above, above the sink, at the highest cabinet level was two bays of the best fireworks display any seven-year-old ever saw in his life. Giant, huge, like bombs, you know what I'm saying? Bricks and bricks of black cats and M80s, and it was all stacked up there. And I knew it was, and we were just waiting for time to blow it up. And uh, I got home from school before everybody else, So I thought, I-, I-, I need to spend some time with that. <laughs> and so I got... I got a step stool out, and I got up on the sink, and I started looking at this stuff, and my eyes just bugging out of my head. This would be so cool. I mean, you know, fire and guys, it all just works. And I found this empty fuse. I thought, well, that would be cool. It wouldn't hurt anybody, and I'd get a little bit of kick out of it. Let me just light the fuse. But in my seven-year-old mind, instead of bringing the fuse to me, I took the flame to the fuse. Yeah, so I got down, and I got a match, and I lit the fuse, and I'm watching it go, and uh-oh, I picked the wrong one, and it's going to the brick of black hats. So it began to unleash everything in the cupboard. And eventually I look back and dishes are flying out of the cupboard and the doors on the cabinets blow off and smoke is now descending. I'm only seven so I'm that big and it's now around my forehead level and there's papers everywhere. And I'm standing in the entrance of the kitchen just going, I'm screwed. (laughs) I maybe not thought that at seven, but whatever version of seven-year-old would say, that's what I thought. And I said, I'm dead. I'm, I'm totally dead. I'm trying to figure out in my little puny mind, how can I make this go away? <laughs> right? My sister runs out of the bathroom, bedroom screaming like, what's going on? I said, I don't know, but I'll go check. <laughs> so I run back in. Again, you have to perpetrate the whole lie. So I, I run back in and watch this thing just disintegrate. The whole room is destroyed. Everything's blacked and I thought, well, I got got to make this look better. It can't look this bad. So I never cleaned up anything. I was seven. So I got a broom and I'm out there sweeping. My dad walked in the back door. There needed to be no conversation. He knew. He knew right away he's covering his tracks. He's guilty. And I was. I was guilty. And that's exactly what the conscience is. Paul says, listen, you can't say you don't have the law. You can't say you didn't know that. You can't say, I didn't study the word and I never sat in a good Bible teaching church. Paul says God is going to look at this God-written code in your heart and you're caught red-handed. And by the way, your conscience knows it because you're trying to cover it up, right? Isn't that the secrets? Isn't the things you don't present to people? You present a false image because you know the false image is the one that people will like. And so you keep the ugly one to wraps, Maybe show it to your husband, your kids once in a while, but you never show the church. good We wouldn't be accepted. Isn't that true? And then he adds one more to this whole judgment thing. He talks about our memories. He uses the phrase conflicting thoughts that accuse or excuse us. It's just the, that's just the idea of memories. And by the way, memories judge us now. God will judge us in the future. Memories deals with us right now. We use words like regret, don't we? This is what keeps us up at night, folks, looking at the ceiling going, I, I can't believe I'm that person. I can't believe I struggle with that. I can't believe that's my, that's my bent and my inclination. And our memories, however long ago it was, is the, is the thing that God uses to put on your chest and crush you to Jesus. Because you can't escape it. You can't say I didn't know and I grew up in a bad home and nobody taught me. You, you can't. Because there are three condemning principles. Law in your heart, your conscience, and your memory. Does that make sense? There's one last truth I want to leave you with today, and that is verse 16. And you might be sitting here, possibly, I kind of a, kind of envisioned uh, this church reading Paul's letter and going, okay, Paul, we get it. We're sinners, all right? Move on. And you, you might be there too, but... If we don't really spend time with the reality of our problem, the gospel isn't as beautiful. Like if all you need is just a small adjustment or or you just need a little bit of help or you just need a little bit of Jesus every once in a while just to kind of sort you out, then the gospel isn't as beautiful and God is not as great, right? This, as hard as it is to see our sin clearly and accurately, is all about the glory of God on display. We are as bad as Paul says, every one of us. And every one of us needs Jesus. Might not think we do, but we do. And that's where he brings us to verse 16. It looks a little intimidating, but let's go through it. He says, on, the, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Gospel is the word good news. And the gospel's got a, a bad function as much as a good function. <laughs> the good news, bad part of the function is Judgment. Because if we end up in heaven in front of the judge, the ultimate judge who is assessing us, and we offer anything but Jesus alone, the gospel will find us guilty. The gospel will say, you've got a man-centered thing going on here. you got to, I'm, I'm as good, I'm good enough to merit God's attention, or I'm not that bad, or somehow my sins aren't that ugly. You have something other than, I'm brutally, horribly messed up. Bent and twisted towards sin in every way. And here's what happens. If you back up to verse 12, there's a phrase there you need to see. You see when he's talking about those who, who uh, don't obey the law or don't know there's a law? He says they perish. He says for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Perish. Judgment. God's condemnation forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's that gospel. If you're sitting here today and going, mm, I'm just going to hear it again. I'm not going to apply it. I'm not going to be convicted. I'm not going to confess Jesus. I'm not going to call myself a sinner. I'm not going to deal with my garbage. I'm just not going to deal with it. Then perish you will because you'll stand before God and the gospel will say, have you trusted in Jesus my Savior and you got nothing to show for it? And yet there's this other part of the gospel. Awesome, best part we've ever heard, right? And this part of the gospel we love. It's the most popular, famous verse in all the scriptures, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever would believe in him will not what? Perish. perish. There's that word again. In chapter 2, verse 12, you perish if you go it alone. And yet you don't perish if you trust in Christ. The gospel is awesome, church. And and, and to you who are a confessing believer, man, this should just like sink down and just make you want to worship and love and just, I can't believe it. If you have been here or maybe you're here for the first time and you don't know of Jesus and you're hearing about God's judgment of sin and it's coming and he won't let go and he's going to use your conscience and the moral code and ultimately your memories to deal with your sin and you won't escape it and God is right for doing so, listen, you're a fool if you don't trust in Christ. And that just simply means that God left heaven and took on flesh. He became like one of us so that he could die in our place. He died on a cross so that God could pour out all of his righteous anger and wrath on our sin in Jesus. And then Jesus gives us a perfection. We can't get anywhere else. We get righteousness. And we are truly, truly free, right? Or maybe like that song, we get to rest. We get to rest in Christ. And Paul says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, not one. God won't bring up a charge. He's not going to say, I remember when. I, I know your inclinations. I know your bench. You're covered in Christ. Amen. Yeah, you should be grinning from ear to ear at this point because that's the good news of the gospel. But again, Paul is just constantly telling us, remember, you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty because at the end of all of those charges is Jesus kind of saying, come to me, all you were are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. When we're done after our worship here in just a minute, if God's convicting your heart, talk to somebody. Ask somebody on the platform. There are pastors all around the room. There are people to your left and right who know Jesus. Talk to them um, and trust in Christ for your salvation. If you're you're a Christian, church, look up. Before you fold up and tap out, we've got a little bit of time ahead of us here, okay? Um, If... If you are a hearer and not a doer, confess it. If there's any category of your life that you've said, "Mm -mm, not that one, God, I'm not doing that, and here's my reasons, then the Holy Spirit has addressed you tonight or today. Make sense? Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to us and I thank you for this message as hard as it is to hear on a regular basis that we are without excuse and every one of us is guilty God I thank you that you keep the pressure on because we wouldn't trust in Christ if it wasn't so for those of us who call ourselves Christians who truly are converted by the mercy of Christ in our lives I pray God that this just fans worship just radical love and obedience in our life to those who don't know you who hear about your righteous judgment, your accurate assessment of sin by looking at our, how we've disregarded the moral code and how we've broken every law and our conscience condemn us. We try to cover our sins and ultimately our memories will deal with us as well. God, I pray that you would find us here. You would save the lost. You encourage the found. We pray in Christ's name, amen.